Welcome to Tech Support, a podcast of the Mount Juliet Church of Christ, where we encourage and equip people to interact with the biblical text. We are your hosts, Tim Martin and Brian Lamaster. This is going to be episode three of our series, Might Be Different, where we're looking at some things if you uh, join us for worship, might look a little different than somewhere else where you've worshiped, or it may not, but want to explore some some of the core elements of our worship and, and what we believe. This week, we are looking at baptism. Uh, which to me is a such an important uh, topic and uh, for us to study. I was having a study with somebody this past week, Tim, and they asked me uh, why churches care so much about being right or like disagreeing with one another, uh, which is a long conversation. But my short answer was uh, because we want to follow truth and pursue God, and that can look differently. Uh, but with baptism, that's clearly part of that element. But I also want people to be confident in their salvation um, and their relationship with Jesus. And when I think about baptism, especially when you get to the New Testament, it kind of seems to come out of, of nowhere. In the Old Testament, you don't really see it. You get into Mark's gospel there, and it's mentioned in the first three verses out of the gate. Then you have the baptism of Jesus also right out of the gate there in the gospels. Why is that? Why does it come out of nowhere? You know, we don't actually know why all of a sudden we see in Mark's gospel, the beginning of Mark's gospel, and I think also in Luke's with John the Baptist's ministry, it says he's doing a baptism. It's a baptism uh, for the forgiveness of sins and a baptism uh, of repentance. And we're like, where does that come from? And a lot of people, I uh, did a paper on this a few years ago, and a lot of people think, well, it comes from proselyte Jewish baptism, where Jews would baptize a, a Gentile, a proselyte, into their religion. But the facts don't support that. We don't see a lot of examples of proselyte baptism uh, until after like the 80-70 type range and on into rabbinic Judaism. Uh, but what we do see in Second Temple Judaism in the time of John the Baptist and maybe even where he came from is— i pause you there again. Okay. Can you define those different eras of Judaism just real quick? Well, like what I would say Second Temple Judaism, everything from when the Second Temple was built, which we see in the book of Ezra uh, in about 516, 517, all the way through AD 70. So the time uh, that we might say that, that Daniel—well, after Daniel lived, but the time Ezra lived, Nehemiah lived— uh, and then, of course, the time of John the Baptist and Jesus, that, that period of Judaism is different uh, post-exile, post post-Babylonian exile. And so that's what I mean. The Judaism that he was immersed in is different than the Israelite religion, say, that David was immersed in. And one more question for you as a follow-up there. Uh, I know several people know this. Some may not. The AD 70, why is that important? Well, it's when, yeah, it's when we know the Romans destroyed the temple. The Jews rebelled against Rome. Uh, after a period where Rome was very, very kind of the Jews and very, very lenient with the Jews, uh, they rebel against them. And uh, uh, we have Titus who comes, the Roman general, and levels the temple, destroys part of Jerusalem. Uh, and so that's the end of that temple, which has not been rebuilt yet today. Uh, matter of fact, that location is where we see maybe the Wailing Wall, uh, one of the exterior walls that we see uh, in images of Jerusalem. So, yeah, that, that's a key date uh, in, in, in the history of the Jews. Sorry to distract you there. I don't remember what I was talking about. <laughs> oh, we were talking about we were talking about John's Baptist. Uh, what we do see in that period of Judaism is a great deal of emphasis on ceremonial washing. Uh, there are baths around uh, Israel and Palestine, especially in the community at Qumran, uh, that are called mikvot, and they're like a ceremonial bath, a set of stairs that walks down into a deep pit with water, and you walk back up the other side of stairs. My understanding is the people who were responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, which may have been the Essenes, a sect of Judaism, we don't know that for sure, but that they washed every day 
Uh, and then we see other examples in Jerusalem of these things where Jews believed in a ceremonial washing for ritual purification, meaning that they're holy, they're sacred. But then we look at the Old Testament, and there are a lot of washings in the Old Testament that we see in Torah. Uh, for example, a leper having to wash, and then uh, some uh, woman uh, being defiled by her menstrual cycle and being washed. We see a great deal of water ritual uh, by immersion uh, and by cleansing to get rid of sin or impurity or uncleanness. And so the concept of baptism as of Christian baptism, as we understand it, wouldn't be strange and unusual, even to pagans who still, even in their religion, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, for example, or others, uh, would be, still believe in his ceremonial purification and washing. You think about the story of Naaman. When he was asked to go dip in the Jordan seven times to be cleansed of his leprosy, a, a healing, a cleansing, he didn't question being dipped in a river and being put into water. His question was, why does it have to be the Jordan? Why couldn't I have done this back home in Syria? But it, it's, it's interesting. It doesn't seem strange to him at all that this ritual washing to be done uh, to be cleansed of some kind of impurity. He, he, that's probably obviously pretty normal. Uh, in the Syrian religion, too. And so I think there's a background to New Testament baptism. The honest truth is we don't know where John's baptism came from. As a matter of fact, the people that Jesus asked, you know, where does John's baptism come from? Was it from man or from heaven? Even the Jewish leaders say, ah, we don't know. Uh, and, of course, we believe it's part of God's plan. So I would say it comes from heaven, not from man. It's made up. And John's baptism was obviously very, very pervasive because we even have Apollos uh, way up in Corinth where we still see John's baptism known so I don't think the procedure or the concept was foreign, but we are not sure where all of a sudden John's baptism for the repentance uh, and forgiveness of sins all of a sudden comes on, and it seems to be very normal uh, and very acceptable to people to do that. Yeah, let me throw this thought in there as well. So just to make sure this makes sense to people. So when the Old Testament ends, you have that blank page in your Bible, and that blank page represents about 400 years. So we're blind to kind of how that developed. Same things as like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, that's just part of their culture then. But we got a lot of questions on exactly how those sects like developed. And uh, we just kind of have to piece some of those together because there's 400 years to where there's not a lot of information there. But this is normal in their day. But how it developed, d don't know really right. for sure. It's kind of like the synagogue. We don't know exactly yeah. how the synagogue developed either. Yeah. So we use the word baptism. Um, but it's kind of a funny word to some degree when you look at the etymology and the history of the word. Why is that, Tim? Well, it's because it's a transliterated word. Now, you don't have to stop me. I'll explain you. Okay. <laughs> but it's a word. We do it often sometimes, even in English, where you take a, a word from its original and we just pronounce it, uh, which the Greek word baptizo is the verb uh, in Greek. So we, we've just taken and moved that word into English. I, I really wish it was translated immersion or plunged or whatever because it would clear up a lot of things about different uh, baptism rituals throughout Christian traditions, but it is just a word that's been brought into uh, English, uh, and it's, it's we just made the word up. I mean, the word is, is, a, is a word that's, uh, you know, pretty unique to Christianity, uh, and probably, I guess you would say, maybe Judaism too, but it's just a, it's just a transliteration of that word uh, into English. I was trying to think about maybe some other words uh, that we had. Uh, from the Bible. Gospels, not gospels. It comes from an old English word, Godspell. But uh, I try to think of another one. But, you know, there are some other there are some other words that we've just brought right over, just how they're pronounced. We just pronounce them that way in English and make up a word. Yeah. But there is definition behind the word. Yeah. So immersion is the one that I normally hear. But yeah, there's other. There's plunge, there's yeah. wash, there's immerse. 
you know, BDAG has it in a couple of different ways, an idea of washing and cleansing and also in plunging. But it's a word that would have been used in common vernacular, too. If I was going to take some pickles and dunk them in a bucket of water, then that would be called, I'm going to still use that, that verb, baptizo, uh, to do that. So it's not just a unique religious word. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's jump into a couple uh, scriptural examples of baptism. I'm going to skip on to the end of the Gospels in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Jesus' kind of final message here to some of his followers, uh, starting in verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, this is Jesus' plea mission to his followers of, hey, I want you to go out into the world and to make disciples. So we know that. That's how faith is passed down from generation to generation. What I want us to notice here is how disciples are made is by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there's going to be a lot of follow-up teaching after that so that they can grow to maturity. But Jesus associates baptism with that initial, this is how you go and you make uh, disciples. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a big string of participles. He says going, making disciples, discipling people, baptizing people, you know, everything that they're told to go and do. It would be very odd if baptism wasn't of extreme importance for Jesus to include that in the orders that he gives to those people standing there uh, about the most important mission on earth. Yeah, I want to share a quote from Irenaeus, and we mentioned him uh, last week. It's interesting to me that this phrase, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, kind of became a tradition that they would use this phrase when baptizing people. This is just one example of somebody talking about it, but uh, they said, Now this is what faith does for us as the elders, the disciples of the apostles, have handed down to us. First of all, it admonishes us to remember that we have received baptism for remission of sins in the name of the Father, in the name of Jesus Christ and uh, the Son of God, became incarnate and died and was raised in the Holy Spirit of God, and that this baptism is the seal of eternal life and is rebirth unto God, that we no longer be children of mortal men, but of the eternal, everlasting God. Uh, that's just one example, but you're going to see that phrase used time and time again, and I use it when I baptize people. I'll say, hey, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins uh, as well. Um, let's then... I mentioned that because I really want us to spend a lot of time in the book of Acts. So you have the four Gospels, and then Acts is going to be our first glimpse into the early church um, after Jesus ascends back into heaven. So chapter 1, Jesus ascends back uh, into heaven. Acts 2, you have the first Gospel sermon, you can say, uh, where Peter's going to deliver this sermon. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes upon them, as was promised by Jesus at the beginning of chapter 2. And he's going to give a good sermon. It gives a great um, summary of the Old Testament uh, to read through of, hey, this is the things that kind of played out from there. And then towards the end of that sermon, um, let's pick up um, in verse 36. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. All right, so at the end of the sermon, he's trying to convince the Jews hey, the man that you just killed is actually the son of God. Um, You missed it. Um, They just saw all the miracles that occurred at his death and the resurrection. Um, He said, hey, you you killed um, both Lord and Christ. Um, And he says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, brothers, uh, what what shall we do? And Peter said to them, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is made for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Um, And then it keeps going. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Um, This is, at least in my upbringing, a very popular verse here, one that I was called upon to memorize as as a young kid, Acts 2.38, a key to the gospel of understanding what God has done for us and our response um, to God. I think it's important to recognize that this is an audience of Jews, so they had an understanding of who God is. You're not going to have this like, oh, let me explain who God is and who Scripture is. Like All that is there. It's really the question of who is Jesus. And then when they were cut to the heart, as in they recognize, oh, Jesus is the Messiah, uh, they respond saying, hey, what are we going to do about this mistake? What are we going to do about this 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 problem that we just caused of, of killing the Messiah? And Peter says to them, um, in verse 36 there, he says, Repent and be baptized everyone in the view in the name of the uh, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they're called to repent of their killing Jesus. Yeah, of killing Jesus, their 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 sin there, and then also to be baptized um for the remission of their sins. And it's this connection of, hey, it's not just repent, it's not just hey believe, not just be sorry, not just take on the faith of Jesus, but he ties to their response uh, this this call to be baptized, to go through this action. And it appears that this uh, that, that is when you are going to receive the forgiveness of your sins. Not, hey, you're forgiven and at a later time, hey, you need to take these steps, or you need to learn more about Christianity and then be baptized. But this is an action that they're called to do here at the moment. And, and it's amazing that 3,000 people uh, did that that day, and they were added to the kingdom. That's right. It's interesting to me. You know, I really haven't thought about this before, but he doesn't say just for the forgiveness of that sin. You know, I'd have to go look at the Greek to see, but I would trust the translators here pluralized the word sins and done so uh, faithfully to the Greek text. Uh, for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, he doesn't just say this is just, hey, y'all made this mistake of crucifying the Messiah. So, hey, repent and be forgiven of this mistake or this sin or this wrongdoing. It's about all their sins uh, where they come into it. And that concept wouldn't have been foreign to them because John's, we know John's was popular. We know John was a very popular individual in Jerusalem uh, in, in that surrounding area. So I, I, I really have never thought about it, but it's forgiveness of sin. So I don't think you're only tying it to their act of crucifying Jesus, uh, but that's what they freaked out about. That's what they were worried about. Uh, that they had done. But I, I just thought about that. I haven't ever thought about that before in my whole life, but I just thought about it right then uh, when we were looking through and, and, and going through it. Yeah, and a, and a word that I hear a lot in, in sermons is this idea of for there as a, as a key word, uh, meaning into or in order to, like the, it is connecting that act with the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, one thing we want to do is just, we're not going to cover all of them because the time, there's not enough time there. We want to look at a couple different examples here in the book of Acts of seeing how the early church responded uh, to the call to be saved, uh, make that decision to be a follower of Jesus, and how is baptism referred to, and the idea of salvation, and all the things wrapped up in that. So we're going to skip forward a few chapters to Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be looking at here of 
Saul slash Paul. I'll just refer to him as uh, as Paul. Don't have time to read all of this, but here's the conversion of of Paul and Ananias gets called to go to to speak to him. And towards the end of his of the narrative here in verse eighteen, um, actually I'll start in verse seventeen. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, "Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you." came and sent me that you may regain your sight. Let me pause there. He, If you're not familiar with this, this story, uh, he was blinded earlier, so he's getting his sight back because it was taken away from him. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales uh, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And it's going to continue on with what he did uh, following. So here's Paul, also a Jew, um, thought he was living the correct way by persecuting the, the church. Jesus comes to him on the road and asks him, hey, wh- why are you doing this? Like, you're messing up. This is not uh, the way. This is not what God wants you to do. And Ananias comes to him. They have this discussion, and then he chooses to, to, to be baptized um, there. And then he's going to recall this later on in Acts chapter 22. Um, as he's retelling the story of his conversion, um, he says that Ananias says to Paul in verse 16, and now why do you wait, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name? That's Acts 22, verse 16. So you see that other connection of, hey, there's this connection between baptism, calling on the name of God, like having faith in God, wanting to live for him and having your sins washed away, that those correspond there at one time in, in his life, in one moment there. Anything you want to add, Tim, before no, we go on? Uh, you know, it's good that we have, because, you know, we don't have that statement by Ananias back in, in Acts chapter 9, but we have it in 22. And look, Paul was there. You know, that's what Ananias said. Uh, and I've heard people say, well, Paul was saved before he was baptized by Ananias. I would say, where in that narrative does he say that, or does that seem to be the case, or that he placed his faith in Jesus Christ? Now, I would say he probably believed that Jesus Christ was for real uh, when he had this uh, uh, vision or this appearing of Jesus on the road to Damascus. I don't think there's any question if I asked him 10 minutes later, well, you think Jesus Christ is for real now? He would say yes. But to say he placed his trust and his confidence and his belief and dedicated himself to him prior to his baptism, and I think Paul spent the next several years growing. We see uh, in his recount in the book of Galatians, he spends many, many years away uh, studying and learning and revelation being given to him. And I think Paul's faith grew. Uh, perhaps he believed in Jesus Christ, but this right here says, and why would Paul include that if he didn't agree with it? Yeah. That Ananias says, be baptized and wash away your sins, uh, calling on his name. And that, that's how calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, and so this is eyewitness testimony that that's what Ananias said to him. And Ananias was told by God, hey, this guy Paul is going to come to you. He's going to be my messenger to the Gentiles. Uh, there's no reason to think that Paul was a Christian before he went to see Ananias. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and one, when I've heard people go down that road, a lot of times they take Ananias calling him brother as saying, oh, he's already part of, like, God's family and a fellow, like, follower of Jesus and, and all that. In my there's no way we can take that, him calling him brother, as a fellow, like, be a fellow Jew. Yeah, be a fellow and Jew. say that trumps Paul's retelling of it, of Ananias saying, hey, be baptized to have your sins washed away, that mm-hmm. he had already received 
forgiveness of his sins. It, it just, it, that doesn't make sense. Well, it's that like anything right. else. We, we all of a sudden, Christians have taken unique possession of the Greek word Adelphos, and it's only used by Christians. Oh, I yeah. mean, Jews may have called themselves brother all the time. Uh, and so there's no reason to think that. Yeah. Um, last one we'll look at in Acts, and, and there's more, but we just want to give a sampling of them. In Acts chapter 16, you have the uh, Philippian jailer, and you have about midnight, Paul and Silas were in, in prison there. They're praying, singing to God. You have the earthquake. And then after that, um, in verse 30, it says, um, sorry, let me just start in verse 28. And Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Uh, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour that night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. A couple things just mentioned here real quick. The reason they tell him not to arm himself is because if prisoners would have been escaped, he would have been held responsible for that. Um, it was like, hey, we're all here. Like, don't harm yourself. Like, it's it's okay. And he asked them, what do I do need to be saved? Whether, how much he knew of that question of what he's asking, I don't know. But Peter takes, or Paul takes this opportunity to share with him the gospel that, hey, salvation uh, can be found by believing in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then they have a Bible study after that where they're going to explain that to him. Um, and then after that, his response to that is he washes their wounds and he was baptized at once. And then his family along uh, with that, then they rejoice um, since he had believed in God. Tim, you want to start yeah, us off? I think it is a, it's an interesting study that I haven't done to exactly what uh, the Philippian jailer, which by all means we believe was a Gentile. Mm -hmm. We read that in a, in a sermon or so. What must I do to be saved? Well, we think about that in the concept of what can I, what, what must I do to be a Christian? Uh, but, you know, that word is not another unique Christian word. It means to be saved or be delivered. Uh, and so he may have well been worried about what's going to happen to him, but also perhaps maybe he'd been listening to Paul and Silas talk. Uh, they'd been singing some songs. Maybe he was listening to them. We simply don't know, but we do know, uh, like you mentioned, is there was more explained to him, uh, and we don't know the content of that conversation, but to understand the gospel because he's coming from a different position perhaps than the Jews and proselytes were in Acts chapter 2 because he didn't understand the concept of God and of covenant and of obedience and a coming Messiah uh, if he was a Gentile and didn't expect that. Yeah, I think that's important to, to note there is in times where you see Gentiles coming to be a Christian, there seems to be more study and explaining done than when it's Jews and there's almost this immediate response because they already know who God is. They understand a covenant with God and all those different things, and you're just adding, you no, know, Jesus is the, the Messiah there. Um, those are some key examples. Hopefully you can see some themes and connections that, hey, baptism is the moment that God chooses uh, to save somebody. There's some key texts that I want us to look at before we dig more into the theology of this. Uh, Let's go to Romans chapter 6. Um, this is my favorite passage to go to if I'm studying with somebody about this topic. Um, I think it's really good in identifying the meaning of baptism, like why why we would have that. 
Uh, starting in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we, conti- are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Let me pause real quick and say, Paul is writing to Christians here, and he's there's a lot of conversation about like grace and sin and uh, not continuing to live in sin, but he's reminding them of the purpose of their baptism. So he's not preaching to them, you need to go and be baptized, but he's reminding them of why they were baptized. Um, and that grace is not something we should abuse, but we should embrace and live for God uh, because of grace. So in verse three there, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were there, we were, sorry, we were buried Therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin. I'm going to pause there. If you're not familiar with this chapter, go ahead and read through uh, the rest of the chapter. But a few things to highlight here. One, he's reminding them that, hey, when you were baptized, you were baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you were somebody that was lost, and then you go into the water. Tim talked about at the beginning that that's viewed as a cleansing of that. And then when you come out of the water, you are being resurrected like a new person, a new creature. Um, You're being connected to this denial of yourself. I'm going to give up my life and and the things that I want to do, and I want to follow Jesus in this new life as you're being uh, raised from that. And it's also this hope of a future resurrection as well, that, hey, I'm going to die to myself, and just as Christ was raised from the dead, hey, we too are a new creature, but we also will conquer uh, death as well. So baptism has a lot of things connected to it. It connects salvation, obviously, the forgiveness of sins, but it also connects discipleship. We saw that at the beginning uh, in Matthew chapter 28, that it's not just this free gift that we get salvation, but it's this covenant that we're making with God, that we are going to follow you and live for you and be a follower of you. So it's not just, we can't just think salvation. We also have to think of there is a responsibility now to live a life for God as one of his servants. We're going from a slave to sin to now a slave to Jesus is one way that Paul would word it there. Yeah, and I don't think that it would be, it makes any sense, nor is it going to make any sense in what we're going to talk about in Galatians in a little bit, uh, to think about this as some kind of symbolic or spiritual baptism, because we don't know exactly how the church in Rome started, but probably the most plausible theory out there is that these were Jews and proselytes from Rome who were at Pentecost and took the gospel back to Rome, because we do know from the book of Acts that there were Jews from Rome. Uh, there and so and Paul's writing to them, uh, perhaps even two decades after Pentecost here, or a decade and a half after Pentecost, uh, they've been established. Obviously, a pretty stout church. They get probably the deepest theological letter that Paul writes. They seem to be very mature in what they're able to have. But he's referring back to an act there that they that they would remember, and it doesn't make any sense to to think that it was figurative uh, in the way it was written. But it, it's also the symbolism of it, uh, like you said. Uh, and going through it, uh, and it also, you know, and then tying it to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which we often do when if we were baptizing somebody and talk through that. Yeah, let's go ahead and jump over to the Galatians chapter 3. We could spend a lot more time in each of these texts, but I want to leave us some time here at the end. In Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26, for it says, 
For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is uh, no male, no female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are of Abraham's offsprings, heirs to his promise. Uh, I love the terminology here. Uh, for as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Um, that idea of that, it's that moment in time that we're connected uh, to Jesus Christ, that we get that salvation, that we now are a follower of Jesus Christ. Tim, let me uh, ask you this. I know the the concept of somebody's maybe against baptism or maybe they haven't done baptism before, they may have heard or, or, or have thought that, hey, you really just need faith only. Like baptism may, and I know you hinted at this earlier, that Baptism may be something that we're supposed to do, or it's a type of confession that we may we may do um, afterwards. But can someone be saved just through faith without baptism? Kind of where did that idea come from? Kind of speak to that for a little bit. Yeah, and I, I could even speak from personal experience in just a second on that. You know, it is a Protestant evangelical belief uh, in this faith only. Uh, thing. It's not something that you would see in the core of the Roman Catholic tradition or the Eastern Orthodox tradition or the Lutheran tradition uh, in, in thinking about faith only. Certainly, there are very, very highly intelligent, God-fearing people, Bible-believing people who have come to that conclusion, uh, much in the same way sometimes as we are guilty of, is going through the Bible in single-verse style, grabbing verses here, there, and yon, uh, to prove a point, which is a terrible practice, and that's why I'm glad you encouraged our readers to go back and think about Romans and Galatians, and both those letters handle some of the same issues uh, on people trying to force Jewish uh, uh, things from Torah, like circumcision and other things, onto Gentile Christians. But when we look at it that way, we just grab, we, certainly there are, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, you'll be saved. We, we see that in, in Romans, for example. The Roman road is a famous uh, evangelism tool that's used by many evangelicals uh, today. But I don't think it makes any sense that I can be saved or rescued or delivered if I'm still stained by my sin. And so the only thing I see is of washing away sin is baptism uh, and, and washing away that sin. Also know that some might say, I've seen scholars say this, that, that are evangelicals that would say, well, yes, in the early church, in the New Testament church, because of their ties to baptism and ritual washings and things, that they believed you had to have this ritual immersion to be saved of your sins. But now that we have a complete New Testament, we see grace uh, and have a fuller understanding of that. We see that it's not, and it's just an outward profession of an inner faith. But I mean, a lot of the baptisms we see in the New Testament are very private. You know, I don't know who saw the Philippian jailer and his family get baptized other than his household. Or Cornelius. Now, certainly the 3,000 people at Pentecost, that was very public. Uh, but a lot of baptisms we see seem to be fairly private. I mean, Ananias baptizing Paul, that wasn't, or Saul at the time, it wasn't some grand public thing. And so it doesn't even make sense that those baptisms were outward expressions of, of an inward faith. And I don't want to detract too much from folks. Of course, I grew up in the Baptist tradition. Uh, and as a young man, I responded to the invitation. I said a sinner's prayer. Uh, I went through a new Christians class, and then I was baptized and officially made a member of that particular congregation. And so I don't remember a lot of things uh, about that, but I was really too young to even understand a lot of those things when I was baptized. Uh, and so 
once I had a deeper understanding of those things and understand that baptism and the forgiveness of sins, which is not something that I was taught uh, in, in, in that process, I, I came to realize that that was true. And I, I need to be washed away of my sins. And there are people throughout evangelical churches who believe that, uh, and we're not the only ones uh, who believe in that concept. And we may talk about that here in just a few minutes. But uh, even from personal experience, I understand that belief system, and I don't parade people. I'm not that much smarter than everybody else, but I think that we ought to believe like the New Testament Christians believe because that's really our example that God has seen fit to give us in the canon of scriptures. And I would also say in early Christianity, we see that example of baptism for forgiveness of sins. We see that in the Didache, uh, which is a very early Christian writing, probably dated the first early part of the second century. You read Irenaeus, uh, which would be late second century. Uh, And so it's not as if, you know, restorationists came up with this idea out of the blue. Uh, it's something that we see dated back in early Christianity. And I, I understand kind of the faith-only salvation because then people can be saved by watching uh, an evangelist on TV and saying a prayer sitting in their home. It's a very easy way for lots of people to be baptized. I grew up watching stadiums full of people respond to evangelists like Billy Graham uh, or people sitting on TV watching that who could say this prayer along with them and be safe. So I can understand that's the case. And people who have done that, I think have done so with a good heart. I think they truly want to be Christians. I think they truly believe in Jesus Christ. So I don't ever want to say a malicious thing about them. I really think they, they truly believe that. I mean, I don't. They were responding to what they had been told. That's exactly do you, right. Do you think the idea of faith only was maybe an overreaction to some things that occurred yeah. in church history? I think it is, as, as most things are in history, uh, is an overreaction to works-based salvation. And that meaning, when I say works, we can talk about the biblical terms for works, which Paul's works and James's works are completely different topics. Uh, But when I think about meritorious works, meaning works that merit my salvation, I I don't know a lot about Luther's argument with the Catholic Church, but I do think there were a lot of arguments about almost like having to buy your way out of sin and to do certain things to earn God's, you know, salvation. And and they seem to be abused uh, perhaps by, by some of the prevailing Christian traditions. Uh, I think it probably is a swinging overreaction to that. But Lutherans don't believe in faith-only baptism, based on my understanding, and they still believe in baptism for the, for the remission of sins. And so I think that swing happened post-Reformation, probably in the Western evangelical American tradition is where that comes from, more so than does it. Now, I'm not an expert in that. Uh, I don't care you know much what happened after about, AD 470, but there, or I think that it seems to be that that creeps in because the oldest Christian traditions do believe in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, even though we may not necessarily agree with how they carried out or their rituals, but the theological concept is definitely there. Yeah, and I I wrote a paper about some of this once in, in grad school about baptism being seen as a work, and you know, in conversations with people, I hear that sometimes as well, as in baptism can't be part of that process because we as a person are doing something and there's nothing we can do to earn salvation, which in principle is correct, but that's not how I see biblical faith playing out. And um, I used to get to work with Mike Winkler um, and he he shared this example in a, in a Bible study once and I thought it was really good. He went to Joshua chapter six and we don't have time to read it, but it's when they're at the walls of Jericho and God says early on in the chapter, he says, I've given Jericho into your hand. But then he still called them to march around the city one time, you know, for six days. And on the seventh, they're going to do it seven times. Mm -hmm. And then they blow the trumpets, the walls come down. 
Now, I think if they hadn't marched around the city, those walls would have not came down. No. Like God gave it to them as a gift. He said, I'm giving you Jericho in your hand, but there was still a response of obedience. Now, them walking around the city didn't cause those walls to come down. It was God that in that moment chose for the walls to come down. And when I view baptism, especially in this idea of, oh, it can't be part of, that can't be the moment you're saved because you're doing something like, it just doesn't make sense to me because we we shower more these days, but like going into the water to like bathe was a common thing in their day that it, it, would, it would be silly to think that that action or that water would save you from your sins. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's really silly well, to think about it. Yeah. That me going into the water and somebody lowering me down and raising me back up, that that would earn salvation or in some way contribute to it. And it's just a response of faith in God. God is the one that is choosing in that moment uh, to save us. So I know that's a short explanation of that, but uh, but I don't think we can view it in that light because no, we're not, not we're not doing anything to earn that salvation. And it's not fair to compare it to what Paul has to say about works of the law in Romans and Galatians. He is speaking of Jewish observances of obedience, whether it's dietary laws or it's circumcision or it's table fellowship or it's Sabbath observance, whatever that may wind up being. Is trying to say, you have to keep these tenets of the Torah in order to be a Christian as well. That's not meritorious works uh, in the same way that this, that they're just, con- the Jews are confused. I'll say, okay, we've been, we've been circumcising our kids uh, for, since the time of Abraham, which is some 18, 1900 years, uh, and since the time of Moses, which by the time we're here is some 1500 years. We will stop doing that and, and thinking we have to do that, so you have to be circumcised. I think a lot of it was confusion uh, they were having to do. And then James's works are things that you do because you're saved. Jesus clearly says when he separates the sheep from the goats that it's going to be because they did good works. They visited the sick. They visited those people who were in prison. Uh, they, they, they did the right things. We took care of the fatherless and the widow and the orphan. You know, it was all these things that we do because we're saved. We, we do those because we're saved. And I think, because I'm a covenantal nomist, that we have to do those things because we're saved. I can become a Christian and just say, you know what, I'm never going to do the things that God asked me to do. Well, there's not a single covenant in the Bible where that's acceptable uh, to not do it. Just like you mentioned walking around, they didn't have to walk around that city. God could have knocked him. He could have made those walls vaporize if he wanted to uh, in doing it. But I, I do think it's an overreaction to that. I don't think we can work. I would tell you that, okay, well, then saying a pr- sinner's prayer is a work yeah. is, is the same thing. If not, then I'm just going to be a Calvinist and believe that I'm a strong Calvinist that says God's going to pick me to go to heaven or he's not. And so, so, so be it. And so there's nothing I can do to earn that salvation. So you know, somewhere in the middle is accurate uh, way to think of things. But I, I wouldn't say that we disagree because of baptism in saying we believe it's a work is a valid discussion because that's not what a work is defined anywhere in Scripture. Yeah, I agree. There's a couple of different areas that people maybe disagree with baptism, one being the purpose, one being maybe the mode that it's done. But then the third part would be el- eligibility. Mm-hmm. Um, let's briefly at least introduce this thought and concept, but what does someone need to know, um, or is there certain, like, what does somebody need to know before they're baptized? Maybe, um, I know some would maybe baptize infants versus adults or somebody else baptizing somebody else. Like, well, what would you say to that question? What does somebody need to know? Or how do I know I know enough to be baptized? Yes. Yeah. I mean, one thing I definitely would agree with all evangelicals is we had to have, we have to have a belief, you know, the word that's translated faith most often in scripture can also mean belief or confidence or trust but we have to hear the message of the word of god i mean there's people you can't be saved 
I don't know what God's going to do with people who never had a chance to hear the gospel. I don't, I'm, I'm not smart enough to figure all that out. But if you, you want, you have to hear and understand. They're like the Gentiles. They had no idea about a Messiah. They weren't expecting a Messiah. They had a Lord and Savior. His name was Caesar. Uh, he was in Rome, and that's what they called him, their Lord and their Savior. They didn't know anything about a Messiah coming. They didn't need a Messiah to deliver them. They didn't perhaps believe in the God of Israel. You know, all those things, they have to understand that who God is, why Jesus was even necessary, who Jesus is, what he did, and, and, and what it meant, what he did on the cross and his resurrection, the promises that brings. They have to realize they're a sinner and they're in need of forgiveness and salvation because some people will be like, I don't need salvation. Yeah, I believe my soul just disappears when I die. And so there's a lot of things you have to work through. I do think, uh, and we will touch on this in just a second, the reason a lot of people want to be baptized again is because they didn't fully understand those things and because early Christian preaching is be baptized, be baptized, be baptized, be baptized. And people would come forward and say, I need to be baptized. And they'd just, be, just run them through the water. That's not true. We even see Peter, even after he said repent and be baptized, and he went on with many more words explaining to them. And those were people who understood God and covenant. I think we need to understand the covenant obligation we're entering into, yeah. uh, that it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. There are expectations on your side of the covenant, just like they were on every covenant uh, that God made with his people. So I think you need to understand that and in, in why is baptism necessary. But faith is also necessary. Confession is necessary. Repentance is key uh, to be able to say, I'm not going to do those things I was doing anymore. And that, that, that amount of repentance is going to differ between people who've been living a pretty sinful life and those who may have been, you know, good moral people and just never did understand God before. But I think the concept of hearing one sermon, uh, and our sermons don't focus primarily on those things anymore uh, because we're, we're preaching mostly to people who are already Christians, uh, but hearing one gospel sermon uh, for a group of people who didn't already believe in God and didn't already believe in covenant, didn't already understand those obligations, I don't think it's sufficient for somebody to be baptized. Now, that's I may sit on an island by myself, uh, believing that it had to be a really long sermon. Uh, and so now it could bring somebody to the point, and I'm really glad when Craig says that here, when he says, hey, if you want to study more, if you've heard something in this sermon, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to study with you. That's what it ought to be. It's not just that we need to hurry up and save these people in case the world ends in 15 minutes because those people don't understand, you know, we need to read them the contract before they come into it. And I think it gives a deeper appreciation of what they're doing. Yeah, and I don't think there's a set criteria because we don't see it in scripture no, we don't. but there is insight into knowing oh there are certain things that people did understand before that time which yeah. you, you had mentioned that um we'll end with this thought you you had mentioned it a second ago and that was the idea of being baptized again and i know different people have different thoughts on this we really don't get a lot of insight at all from scripture to this idea we know that hey there are things that people needed to know before they were baptized in to me, it all comes down. I want somebody to have confidence that we see that gift in first John, especially that we can know that we are saved and we can have peace with God. So that's a thing that a lot of times drives my conversations with people is if they're worried about it and it's from a standpoint, I just don't think I understood what I was doing or I wasn't really committing my life to, to Jesus. Like I want them to have that assurance because I think that's one of God's greatest gifts that he's given us that we can look back in time and, and know hey, Jesus saved me here when I gave my life over to him and accepted him. And we can have peace um, that whatever we face in life and we can have peace and death because of Jesus Christ. You got additional thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody wanting to be baptized again because they didn't understand what they were doing before. And I know some people are resistant to that because, well, they were baptized. And so 
that was okay. They just learned everything afterwards. Well, if a person doesn't feel confident in their salvation, then that's something that needs to be discussed and something that needs to be talked about. And I think for a lot of people who were raised in Christianity, baptism does seem like this just natural thing I'm going to do uh, in my life, almost like a Jew- Jewish bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah is this is just part of life. And so I do it uh, just because it's natural and I'm expected to do it. And all my friends have done it and everybody in the church does it. And my parents want me to do it. Uh, I think it's, uh, I'm glad today we don't necessarily look at it in that way, but I think it's because baptism was so important, and it is important, but it, because it was pushed so much as its salvation, its salvation, its salvation, that maybe we forget about those other steps, steps of hearing, believing, repenting, confessing. Well, there's a lot to that believe thing, and that's going to depend on one's background. Yeah. You know, if they're brought up in, in, in Christianity, then they don't have as much. Well, we're talking about somebody on the street who's never set foot in a church before, never read the Bible before. There's no way that they're going to know enough to be baptized into Christ and understand what they're doing in a, in a 25-minute sermon. I mean, I just don't believe that's halfway possible, you know, you know, unless God gives them some kind of revelation uh, in doing that. As we close here, I want to share a quote by Everett Ferguson as my final thought here. I loved what he said here. It said, faith takes away the love of sin, repentance takes away the practice of sin, and baptism takes away the guilt of sin. I love that just because it ties in all three of those core things that we've been talking about in this conversation and the importance of all of those uh, uh, for us. Tim, you got a closing thought? No, we had talked a little bit. I alluded to this earlier. I also want to know that you know sometimes people think maybe churches of Christ or restorationist churches are weirdos in believing in baptism for the forgiveness of sin, but we're not. You know, even though we may not agree, like I said, with the rituals and practices or infant baptism or some things, the majority of Christians on this planet are people who claim to be Christians, which would be the Roman Catholic Church combined with Lutherans and the Greek Orthodox, believe that baptism, even by infants, to forgive original sin, still the underlying principle is the forgiveness of sin. And so even though we agree with them in in a lot of the principles and practice, the underlying theology is still the same. It's for forgiveness of sins. Or if I wanted to become a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox Christian, I'd have to be baptized as an adult uh, for the forgiveness of sins and to add me to that Christian body. And so the underlying principles are still the same, even though we don't agree, you know, maybe necessarily on the way things are carried out uh, in doing that. But it's just, for me, those are the oldest Christian traditions you can go back to. Uh, the Nicene Creed, for example, in 324, which is a core creed of Christianity, says, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So this is not some invention of 18th, 19th century Restoration Movement churches. It is a long-standing Christian belief way, way back uh, into early Christianity and in the New Testament. Yeah, especially like when you think of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus' call for, hey, this is how you make disciples, and then how they carried that out in their preaching and people's response to it. You definitely see that that is the moment that God chooses uh, to save uh, people that want to follow him. Um, if you got questions or suggestions for future topics, let us know by emailing us at podcast at mountjuliet.org. To our fellow students of scripture, thank you for joining us for tech support. We hope you will join us next week. This is a podcast of the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. You can find more personal growth resources like this one at mountjuliet.org resources. The Mount Juliet Church of Christ exists to glorify God and make disciples by helping people grow in Christ, love one another, and serve others. Music